While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. She's she's just getting into the wedding planning, and I'm like, I want to be I want to be more invested in some of the decisions that are being made, like about centerpieces and what's going to be on the walls and stuff. Dude, it doesn't but, matter. It but doesn't like, matter. I don't. But like, I suggest that I want candles on the table. Like, that's the one thing. That's like the that's the skin I have in this game right now. You want you want candles on the tables as like part of whatever centerpiece. What color candle? I don't know. What I fragrance? Don't. I had no You fragrance. need to get this on lock before you are proposed. No fragrance? No fragrance. Okay, that's probably a good idea. Because I think if you have like a bunch of tables worth of like probably like 10 or 12 or something tables with candles all on them and they're all burning, it's probably going to smell like overpowering. So, okay. Just because I like, I like candles. Do you think... <laughs> Do you, do you just think that there's not a fragrance that goes with your relationship? Is there not? No, a I just scent I just that think that any any fragrance of candle would become overpowering if there were that many of them burning. I mean, but if you had to pick one, is there a fragrance that you think sums up your know. relationship? Like laundry, laundry smell. <laughs> we have one. We have one now that I like. That's called pink sand, and it's just pink. And it smells nice, but I don't. I didn't know that sand smelled like anything in particular. I've never lit sand on fire, so I don't really know. You've never tried to make glass? No. Like Captain Planet? No. <laughs> does Captain Planet make glass? Is that what he does? There's an episode, I think, where he was on a beach and he made a bunch of glass to thwart somebody. I don't know. Okay. One of, the, one of them guys. All right. Well, welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read and the weddings you've been meaning to plan. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And ignore that second part of the intro, because we're only talking about books. <laughs> only books. Um, so for those of you who are just tuning in, um, every week we pick, one or the other of us will pick a book that we've never read before, whether we've been meaning to read it for a while, or we just picked it at random, or if there was a free Kindle version, we pick it and we read it and we explain it to the other person. Yeah, that's usually what happens. And we're we're like bettering ourselves and also you listen to it. And that's how the show works. Yeah. That's uh, so Craig, <laughs> that's I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna run with something. What was Craig, I gonna... tell, tell me what you read this week. I read The Awakening by Kate Chopin. I'm going to say All it's right. Kate Chopin because that's how I pronounce the composer's name, Frederick Chopin. Uh, that's like Chopin for you yokels. Yeah, nobody wants to be like, oh, Frederick, Frederick Chopin. Welcome to Versailles, Ohio. He's my second favorite composer after Richard Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> Old Dickie Wagner, yeah. I had a music teacher in sixth grade. And his name was like Mr. Tanner or something. I don't remember the. Was he the German? Name. Was his name Tane? No, he was not German. But we played this game when he didn't feel like trying that hard. We played this game called Composer Bingo. Okay. And he would call out the composers, and and you know it was bingo. And did he play the he, music? No, he did not. It was just ah. Composer Bingo, and he hated it. That's funny. When people said Richard Wagner. He hated it so much that of course. All the sixth graders in the class only said Richard Wagner. That's great. Because of course, of course we did. I love it. I love antagonizing teachers. All right. So Kate Chopin wrote this book called (laughs) The Awakening. And I assume it's about somebody's morning routine. Yeah, that's basically what it's. It's actually a diary that Kate Chopin wrote. And it talks about brushing your teeth, which had just been invented in 1899. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then she gets dressed, which had just been invented in 1899, and then she eats some special K, which, which had been invented the prior the year. Prior. 
Uh, actually, this is about a spiritual or emotional awakening. Uh, it's a oh, bit wow. of a metaphor, as we like to Twist. say in the biz. Uh, <laughs> I got this book for Christmas uh, from my sister, and she her, her I opened this big box for Christmas, and it was full of books, and expects to see some of them on the podcast. Uh, some of which she said, you need to read more female authors. <laughs> I was like, okay. Okay. I, I have not, you know, before this very second, I have not thought of it, but I bet if I looked at our list, it would be embarrassing. Oh, it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> uh, the last one I I know off the top of my head I read was uh, Jennifer Egan with the uh, Visit from the Goon Squad. I don't I don't know offhand who else I've read. I read, I read The Color Purple, which was Alice Walker. I'm sure there has been another since and there were others before. Uh, did a woman write the nonfiction book that you wrote as well? That I read? Yes, that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, don't go back to school, yeah. so that was one. Um, but anyway. we, don't, we don't have to dissect this this thing on air, but okay, point well taken. Yeah, so it's a really, it's actually a good, a point well taken, and then it also factors into what the book is about. If I said that a woman in the late 19th century wrote a book called The Awakening, Andrew, what do you suppose it might be about? I would assume that it would be sexual. A little bit. Okay. It would either be like sexual or it'd be about like sisters doing it for themselves. Okay. And when you mean sisters, you mean like women girl power, not like Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yes, you are correct. Don't even you don't even have to finish that. Sentence. Okay, great. Um so I don't know how much you know about Kate Chopin. Um I was doing a little bit of reading before the show. Uh-huh. Um, you can fill in fill in the gaps okay. in my uh in my knowledge, but it sounds like she had an early life that was kind of filled with with sadness. I guess. Yeah. She had a she has a she has a husband who dies relatively early. She has a mother who dies relatively early. Her father died when she was and, five. Right. Also. Yeah. That too. And um, my understanding is that her for her like writing was a way to cope with like loss and with. I think the family that she found herself kind of having to tend to. Yeah, and she didn't come to writing in any professional way, from what I understand, until much later. I know she'd written short stories, and The Awakening is actually only her second novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh, excuse me. Um, but <laughs> she started writing after, uh, expressly in the 1890s. Um, after both her mother and her husband had passed away. And when she got into it, she started writing short stories and then slowly kind of graduated to the novel. And there was actually some backlash to The Awakening uh, because people were kind of wondering how this woman who had written such agreeable short stories, which I think were a mix of slice of creole life slice of louisiana life mixed with some of these ideas this kind of proto-feminist ideas um and then she kind of went whole hog with it on the awakening and and people were not happy about it um Mm -hmm. one of the things that i don't i have i wasn't able to find any sort of uh i'm sure there's literature on this but I think it's probably important to note that since her father died when she was five, she was raised basically by multi, a multi-generational family of women. Um, she was close with her mother and her grandmother and her great-grandmother. Uh, and at the time of the writing of the book, or at least when Chopin was growing up, uh, it was, either, I don't know if it was quite law, but it was kind of commonly understood in a, in a highly Catholic upper class society in Louisiana that women were de facto property of their husbands. Okay. Um, maybe not legally, but in the you will be faithful until told otherwise kind of sense. Yeah, I mean I think you can you can see like nineteen like eighteen hundreds, Catholic, the deep south, I think you can see all those puzzle pieces and put them together. Yes. Exactly. Um and it's worth noting that just before we even get into the plot of the book there were a lot of struck me funnies. That's the thing we haven't talked about in a while. Yeah, um, I know. I like that. But there's a lot of struck me funnies in this book that are not good struck me funnies. <laughs> They're kind <laughs> of like take me out of the story, outdated uh, words for um, people of, of a race that is not white. 
Okay. Well, we we maybe don't need to read. No, I, I, I don't plan to read any of those passages. Um, but just know that they're in there, and I, I don't know that. Um, Sh- what one of the things that Chopin does not do is explore, uh, at least in this book, race relations to any any severe extent. Um, now, do you think the the presence of that stuff in the book is in any way malicious, or is it just kind of a product of the time and environment? No, it's more product. It, it actually doesn't really factor into the plot, other than the fact that there was a woman. Uh, who is repeatedly referred to as the quadroon, which I think just means that her, uh, uh, per her lineage, a quarter of her um, parental genes were were black of some kind. Oh, that's that's great. Um, what? It's, well, it's really important to track. Well, the, you know the, what percentage? I, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not calling you out for okay. this. I just. I just. That's that's gross. Yeah, okay. I know. That, I I feel like that's worse than. In some ways, that's worse than just being straight up racist. Is being like racist in a really pedantic, specific well, way. Well, and that was something about something like it that. It actually reminded me of um, a long ways ago when I read oh, what was it called? A Lesson Before Dying, um, where okay. there was a lot of stratification within the non-white culture, like the. Um, men and women of mixed race actually looked down on uh, what they considered purely black folk. Um, mm-hmm. And that was just an interesting variation on that theme that I don't know I had necessarily read a lot about before. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole nother thing yes. that still, I think still has lots of implications now is, is sometimes people of mixed heritage like have trouble finding any one group to fit into or like they have to pick one or just it's it sounds like it's still really uncomfortable oh yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) to to put it bluntly and simply yes it sounds like it is still an issue uh we will have to find we'll have to find some more books about that too yeah but um so the last thing about um the author yeah i want to ask about if you read anything in particular about is I thought it was kind of interesting that she's sort of identified as this proto-feminist, but she herself would not self-identify as a feminist. Yeah, I don't know that that... I, I did not do enough research on where the term feminist might have been in mm-hmm. the 1890s. Uh, I do know it's actually very fortuitous that I read this book because I'm actually about to prep for a production of... Um, Henrik Ibsen's Hedda Gabler, which is his one of his more famous plays, uh, along with A Doll's House, which are both kind of regarded now as proto-feminist plays that were written in the 1890s as well in Norway. Mm-hmm. And Ibsen, the playwright, also a man, also said that he was not a feminist per se, but he was concerned with the strength and power of the individual, which I think is something Kate Chopin said very similar words to that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to ca- I think to call, at this point in time, perhaps, I don't know this to be true, but I would venture a guess, that to call yourself a feminist almost, uh, at least because that, that had not come into full effect, and, and anybody who studied this more than me should write in and, and help educate me, actually. Um <laughs> But because that was just beginning to become a movement and just beginning to become a school of thought, that you might almost sell it short if you say that it is purely about women and not about individuals. Because what you're doing is then you are uh, separating women out rather Mm -hmm. than doing what I I think the book is trying to do, which is put them on equal on an equal playing level does that make sense sure yeah 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 um the quote from her grandson is that uh kate was this is her grandson david chopin kate was neither a feminist nor a suffragist uh she said so she was nonetheless a woman who who took women extremely seriously she never doubted women's ability to be strong uh and i find a lot of similarities in this work to like i said some of the work of ibsen and i'm sure there are other writers that i should know uh, that kind of trump use use the the middle to upper class woman as a way to explore this idea of individualism and 
and individualism in the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. That's, it's interesting because I, I think you could read this book and, and totally, I, it is still very relevant, I think, in a lot of the ways that uh, I'm jumping like probably 30 minutes of podcast right now but <laughs> i think it's it's very relevant for some of the things that are maybe not exactly the same but people are still worried about if you want to put it that okay way. so um so do you want to hit me with a quick synopsis first or do you want to get into some of those like themes or the things that hit you why don't why don't we start with a synopsis let's start with a synopsis so the woman who is the central character of the story is edna Pontelier, or Pontelier, I think it's Pontelier, um, and she is married to Léonce Pontelier. Uh, there's a lot of French in the book. Um, actually, the author Kate Chopin was from Irish and French Canadian descent, and then she herself and her husband uh, lived in like the Creole area of Louisiana, a lot of New Orleans Creole stuff. Um, so there's yeah, a New, or- New Orleans is is really I mean there's a lot of French stuff there there's a, there's a lot of like we went when we went down to New Orleans we went on this ghost tour oh, yes <laughs> which is sort of neat and you know you you go by these buildings and they tell stories about oh this and this is haunted and here's why but you also get stories about the area and like who controlled it at this and this time and like what you know how the architecture of a building built during this period would be different than one built during another period so yeah it's kind of cool but yeah yeah strong strong french roots so not a lot of and there's surprise there's actually a lot of french in, in the book as well like kind of turns of phrase um one of the main plot points that we'll get to actually turns on a song that gets sung in french but anyway so the pontelliers are vacationing in an area called grand isle um with this other family called the Lebruns. And Edna, who is married to Leonce and has two kids with him, uh, begins to develop a relationship with Robert Lebrun, who is the, or Lebrun, I don't know, uh, who is the <laughs> son of the matriarch of that family. And, and there are two sons, Robert and Victor, and she begins to fall for Robert. And they don't, it kind of just happens. He's kind of just, inter- he just talks to her a lot and they spend some time together. He invites her to go to the beach and she kind of says no. And then they hang out a lot. And it's like, <laughs> it's kind of taken for granted that it just starts to happen. Um, and you don't really get a sense for why she married her husband in the first place or anything like that, which I think is part of the point. It's like a decision was made and, and now she's part- she's in her life and is realizing that she might regret it Mm -hmm. so there's this event that takes place uh where they have a bunch of people over at uh at the lebrun estate or wherever they're they're staying and this big party happens and then everyone decides at at robert's request that maybe we go out into the and i don't know if it's uh, a lake or if it's actually on the beach um they're on the gulf of new mexico so it might actually be the beach and they decide to go in the water at late at night, and ooh, it'll be fun. <laughs> and uh, Edna doesn't know how to swim, and she decides to go in anyway. And she slowly starts to learn how to swim, and that in itself is the beginning of this kind of physical awakening of her own abilities. Like the the water becomes a metaphor, like being in the sea becomes a metaphor throughout the throughout the book. Okay. Um, and so then she spends that night uh, with. Robert, not in a in a sexual sense, but just with him, spending a lot of time with him, and then he leaves, and she has a really terse evening with her husband, uh, and then a couple of days go by, and she spends the day with him, with Robert, excuse me, uh, on another island um, with these kind of, uh, not old world, but kind of lower class people in this in this village, and she's kind of getting all wrapped up in him, uh, and it gets pretty close to something taking place and then he runs away to mexico um without any by something do you mean like relations yes almost relations i don't even think that they kiss like it's not like it's just that they are spending a lot of time together and it is clearly changing her um as it were i want to see if i can if i can find the quote about the sea here um She, all right, this is uh, 
Robert invited her to go to the beach with her, and, and, she, re- and she declined because she didn't know what to do about it. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. This may seem like a ponderous weight of wisdom to descend upon the soul of a young woman of 28, perhaps more wisdom than the Holy Ghost is usually pleased to vouchsafe to any woman, but the beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such beginning, how many souls perish in its tumult. Uh, And then it goes on to, to talk about how the sea speaks to the soul, and the touch of the sea enfolds the body in its soft, close embrace. Um, so she's getting, it's almost the sense of like she can't help what is happening to her. You know, her feelings towards Robert have kind of awakened <laughs> in her uh, a greater sense of her nice. own value. Does that Way make to sense? bring it home. Yeah. Uh, so Robert goes, oh God, this is getting, maybe, maybe something's going to happen. I got to get out of here. And he flees to Mexico City. Uh, with the idea that he has some sort of business venture and he doesn't explain himself and she gets really upset. Uh, So then time passes and they move back to New Orleans City proper and Edna starts kind of rebuking her husband, Leonce, about the normal state of things. Now, I watch a lot of Downton Abbey. I don't know if you watch Downton Abbey, Andrew. I don't watch Downton Abbey, but I understand that it's a lot of people talking about things. (laughs) So... One of the things that seems to happen in Downton Abbey, that's maybe 15, almost 20 years after the events of this book, but I still feel it's kind of similar as, as an analog, is that, like, you're just around your house all day if you're, if you're like, a woman or you're not working, depending on your, on your social class. Now, this does take place in America, so a lot of the men have these, like, nebulous business jobs. Um, but she's supposed to have, like, callers on Tuesday. Like, she's just supposed to hang out in the house and people are going to come by and talk to her or have tea or whatever they do. And she starts to ignore those people and is like, I don't okay. want to do it. I'm not interested. I'm going to go do my own thing. And one of the things that she starts doing is visiting this woman that she doesn't really like who plays the piano named Mademoiselle Reis, R-E-I-S-Z. That's not an easy name to say off the page. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Mademoiselle Rice had played for her at the earlier party before she went. Uh, they didn't go skinny dipping, but it was when she had her awakening in the pool. And she kind of gets fascinated with the music that this, that this woman plays and starts to visit her purely to feel those emotions. And she's kind of eschewing her motherly duties. She sends the children off to go uh, live on a farm for a couple months. <laughs> it's like, I'm, do- I'm not lying. <laughs> and like the line she has is like, she uh, she wants them to have the same childhood that her, her husband had, where, where he had like a great sense of the outdoors and all this stuff. Um, and she tells so her kids are just like dogs. Like if oh you got if you gotta go, you can just like kennel them. Just for a put bit them outside and then, come, and then come back. Send them off and just it'll be fine. Just fill the food bowl up real high and make sure they've got a fresh litter box and, and just go. <laughs> just leave. And to skip around a little bit, like. Could not to make the same more confusing than it is, but earlier in the book, she does protest to her friend that uh, her love for her children will never waver. That she, you know, regardless of however she grows as a person, she will always care for her children. Now she loves her children, but she gotta she's gotta make some time to like figure this stuff. Yeah, out, that's basically, right? yeah, that's where she is right now. And one of the f- most fascinating scenes in the book that I found is actually like an analog of a season one Mad Men scene that happens. Okay. So, and keep in mind that season one of Mad Men is really the only season I've watched in total. Um, okay. Not that that's Hillary or thither. But uh, her husband, Leonce, pulls a Don Draper and he goes to a doctor in New Orleans and he's like, hey, my wife is acting weird. I want you to come by and find out what's wrong with her. She's, and then tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, basically. He's like, my wife is being uppity. What should I do about it? And the doctor's like, the doctor seems pretty with it. He's like, I don't know, man. Is there something like genetically wrong with her? And he's like, no, she's from Kentucky Presbyterian stock. She's fine. Like, that's actually what he says. <laughs> and, the, and the doctor's like, well, I mean, I'll be happy to come by. But for right now, just kind of let her be. Let her do her thing. I'm sure it's a phase. 
and then at the end of the scene the doctor has this has this line where he he he's like oh well i i didn't dare you know he didn't dare say it to his face or whatever but he's like i i hope it's not i hope there's not a man involved because the doctor knows exactly what's going on he he knows people he's seen people awaken before it's yeah well the doctor seems like in he seems cool with it you know um but anyway so then the doctor comes over and sees her and his reaction is that she's she's definitely into someone that is not her husband and he's worried that it's this other guy around town who has a bad reputation his name is i'll say Alobin. okay which is a great way to introduce a character we haven't met yet who then becomes a major character <laughs> I'm worried he's she's going to become involved with this. Now she will. This so player about town, so, this cock of the walk. Uh, he is a cock of the walk. Good call. So uh, Edna's husband leaves for New York on a business venture, which was a terrible decision on his part. If he wanted to keep his wife, he should never have left. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what you got to do is you just got to sit and watch them and just... I mean, I, they put one I toe wrong. Like, yeah, just, I guess. I don't know. So he leaves and... Uh, he's making noise about kind of making a bunch of money and then maybe they'll go on a trip and that will cure her ostensibly, right? Okay. So while that's happening, Edna, uh, her father like raised horses for like horse racing. And so she starts spending her time at the track and winning and wins a bunch of money. Um, and she and while she's at the track, she meets Alsei Arobin and he starts getting really into her. And she starts to feel as if she's cheating by spending time with Alsei. Who do you think she's spending? Who do you think she feels like she's cheating on, though? Like Robert. Probably, yep, right? you are correct, yeah. sir. Because she doesn't really care that much about her husband. Nope. Finding it interesting how much of her awakening is in response to like new sensations and not like realizing things about her marriage and her like her motherhood and like things that she's accustomed to not like realizing she's unhappy with that, but like going out and like swimming or meeting a guy or playing the ponies. There's maybe one. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) There's maybe one. There's definitely one scene um, earlier in the book before they go back to new Orleans, but after she started to get involved with Robert where uh, she spends all night, like outside on the porch and Leonce tries to get her to come inside. And they're, like, kind of having a fight, but they're not really arguing, like, verbally. Okay. And he is, like, just telling her to come inside because he is worried about her. And, and you know, clearly they're in a fight. And she has a moment where she, you know, realizes, or at least from her point of view, is like, I've, I did not realize that. My husband was such a bully in that he he wanted me to do what he wants, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you have that moment, and there's maybe one or two of those more, but it is it is not a slow disintegration of interactions between her and her husband. It's these other things that she's doing. Um, she gains agency by Robert's interest in her and then just kind of moves out from there. Right, okay. Uh, so I assume things with Alsei, this, this, this... Yep. This... I don't even I don't even know how to describe He's a rake. this this Lothario. Yes. Um, I assume things get physical. There is at least one scene where uh, he like grabs her hand and starts making out with her hand, and she's like, "No, no, no, don't do that." Um, and then there's another scene where they do make out, um, but she's not happy about it. It's just happening, and other people are talking about whether or not it might be happening, which is kind of bad for everyone. Um, meanwhile, she keeps going to the piano player's house, this Mademoiselle Rice, and Robert is writing letters from Mexico City to Mademoiselle Rice asking after Edna, but he, but he's not actually writing letters to Edna. And that's this cause of dismay for her because she's like, why is not, why is Robert not writing to me directly? But he does keep writing all these letters wondering how I'm doing. Um, and one of the scenes between her and the piano player boil down into what causes love and uh rice is kind of saying like oh well if i were if i were a young girl smitten with someone i would i would think i would fall in love with him because of such and such like he would have these qualities 
and Edna answers, do you suppose a woman knows why she loves? Does she select? Does she say to herself, you know, here is a distinguished statement with presidential possibilities. I shall proceed to fall in love with him. And she says, uh, no, she, fall, she fell in love with Robert because his hair is brown and grows away from his temples because he opens and shuts his eyes and his nose is a little out of drawing because he has two lips and a square chin and a little finger which he can't straighten from having played baseball too energetically in his youth. <laughs> and then Mademoiselle says, because you do, in short. Um, so there's this idea that she she's answering to unconscious or subconscious urges. Like it's not... Mm-hmm. It's not a conscious choice. It's not a logical choice, any of her behavior. Um, So what she decides to do while her husband is away is throw a big party at the house that she's living in to celebrate the fact that she's selling her husband's house. Or at least... Does he know that she's selling (laughs) Okay. She's spending her... Or at least she's moving out. She's spending all her pony money and some of her inheritance on buying a small, what she calls, pigeon house around the corner because it's small pigeon house and okay. uh she's gonna move out so she throws this big party and leon's tries to save face by eventually saying that it was under construction and he's gonna have guys improve it etc cetera, etc cetera. so she throws this huge big party and robert uh, robert's brother is there robert's brother victor who ends up singing this song in french that's like oh if you knew what your eyes said to me and it kind of upsets her and it, it would make a great scene for a film where she like everyone thinks they're having a great time and she slowly gets more and more unnerved um, and then she ends up like spilling wine on a bunch of people this is in the book man um and it kind of goes badly someone call leonardo cap leonardo dicaprio i'm sure we can I'm sure we can ruin this. Yeah, and then, and then Jay-Z will write all the music. It'll be it'll be perfect. Um, and so that goes down, and it doesn't go down well. And then Robert returns. So she's moved out of the house, and Robert comes back. And it boils down to one moment where Robert says that he felt foolish thinking he could free her from her husband uh, and have her. And she says... Uh, where she is now, if he had come to her and said, uh, I freed you from your husband, you're, you're here with me now, she says, I should laugh at you both. Because at this point, she's realized that she doesn't want to be any person's wife. She still loves Robert, but she's come to the realization that that type of love uh, necessitates her being someone's property. Right, because, I mean, you know, I have freed you from your husband. Like, you you had no particular agency in this. It was all me. You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. Um, And so then the book ends on a super downer uh, where true freedom comes from, what do you think, Andrew? Um, The sweet release of death? Yep. (laughs) Okay. And where do you think that sweet release comes from? Um, metaphor like, from earlier in the book probably she drowns herself yeah right? she, like she because goes, she got in over her head well no literally oh god oh that's insensitive she goes to the Oops. beach and just keeps swimming until she can't anymore and then the book ends uh, yeah okay uh well i mean like it makes sense like she's 28 she's an old maid mm-hmm. she's alienated her husband mm-hmm. like what else is what else is left for well her? and she's it, really she, when you think about she's it. she's has enough financial security to kind of live on her own but the thing that makes it so scandalous and made it so scandalous in 1899 was not only did she leave her husband uh which in the book there's never a divorce she's still Mrs. Pontelier, she just is not living with her husband. Um, the, sca- the One of the most scandalous things is that she decided to leave her children, um, which is similar to, um, as I said earlier, uh, A Doll's House by Ibsen, which is um, Nora just leaves her family and says, nope. I got this. I'm going. I could see that. I mean, how does that how does that jive with her stuff about her love for her children never wavering? Because as far like I, you're probably summarizing and probably glossing over some stuff mm-hmm. but as far as i can tell from this her children really do not factor into her decision making at all like she has to get rid of them for any of this stuff to even happen yeah there's uh they're in the earlier parts of the book they're kind of around but it's they're almost around to show how little she pays attention to them okay. um 
And then later in the book, she does see them once or twice and is, you know, very caught up in all the things they have to tell her and all the things that they did. And then she sends them away again. Like, it's not... They don't factor into her day-to-day life in any way. And I think part of that is carrying this idea of independence beyond a reasonable step or not not a reasonable step but beyond its first logical step it's not just independence from husband it's independence from anyone else you know um, yeah. especially as those kids came from that husband etc etc um so yeah it's it's a it's a fascinating book from that angle and and i did not expect that it would end the way that it did um it's kind of one i mean how did did you think it would be like a happily ever after thing or like no no and i and i was i was pleasantly surprised it was one of those um surprises that i should have seen coming when she told robert when she came to the conclusion that robert would not uh suffice for her there's like a she kind of debriefs the chapter after she tells robert that she should that she would laugh at him where she realizes that though she did love him very much uh, it's the kind of love that would wane over time as she realized that she was beholden to it. Mm-hmm. And I should have thought that that was going to happen, but I was, you know, as I said, pleasantly surprised by it. But I did not expect there. It kind of the last chapter jumps a little bit in time uh, and sees people kind of, they're like working on her porch or something. And then she walks down to the beach and just starts swimming. And then all of a sudden she's gone. <laughs> and it was quite i don't know it's quite unexpected i mean it's a it's a logical conclusion from a writerly standpoint i mean I, yeah i guess it wraps up the symbolism yes nicely if it if it maybe puts a little too fine a point on it i, don't, I guess that's forgivable i don't know i, I don't know it's, if it seems a little on the nose but, for me but like i guess we wise. have we have over a hundred years of context for that right I think in I suppose, in yeah. 1899 that is not on the nose at all. That is like, oh god. The the only the only true freedom is death. The only, you know, in this current I don't think the book is um book is not didactic. The book is here is a woman and this is her situation and this is the society in which she exists and these are her options. Um and I think then you read it and you might, if if you were a contemporary of this book, you might go, oh, those are the only options? Maybe we should find some more options. Like, I think that's, <laughs> I don't know that you, Chopin would call herself a political writer, but it, if you even want to entertain that art can be political without setting out to be, um, I see that as a logical step following it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I wasn't even I wasn't even talking about the the freedom stuff, but more that like she's she's in the water when she begins having this awakening, mm. and she in exploring all these things, she maybe gets past the point of no return, and then literally at the end of the book, she swims out into the water and she's past the point of no return. Like that's that's what I'm talking okay. about. They're, they're, it's it's a little it's fine. Like, <laughs> not saying everything needs to be some inscrutable like writerly thing that's just that's i don't know this is consumed with being clever rather than clear but uh that's what i was talking well, about when i said on the nose okay fair and this is also a writer who made her start writing short stories which uh i would be interested to go back and read and see if they trod in the same or tread if they tread in the sa- <laughs> treading water <laughs> if they tread uh, in the same uh economy water what i just said oh water. thanks <laughs> if they tread in the same economy of symbolism um because it's not like that that swimming or sea motif is all over the book but it's generally the one of the few if any that i can think off the top of my head that she goes back to on more than one occasion mm-hmm. um and the book is not terribly long the the version i had was just over 100 pages um so it feels slight you know by comparison to a lot of other texts but it is definitely a rich portrait of this one character sure um yeah 
don't know. There's there's something another thing that was that was kind of interesting from just a societal perspective that I I think we can just have a, an interesting discussion about maybe is the idea of like having people over and then having someone play music because that is such a huge because there's no record you know there's there aren't recordings at this time yeah no. I mean you can't just hook your iPhone up to some speakers <laughs> or something and, and you know I, I was reading this uh, I spent the weekend. Um, well, we spent, Laura and I spent the weekend. She did a lot of work, actually, while I was off doing other work, uh, repainting our kitchen. And we just kind of had music on the whole time. And I was just kind of reading this and thinking, like, wow, we would not have been able to do that <laughs> at all. Like, we would have had to have someone in the house to sit at a piano that we owned and play it. Um, yeah. But you would also... Well, I mean, you would have a piano instead of your like record player and your TV and your your Xbox and your <laughs> hula hoops and all the conveniences of modern life. Like, I think you would be equipped. That's fair. As a middle class person, I think you'd probably have a piano and enough money to pay like Piano Billy or whoever the local guy is to like come over and play you some... Some well, maybe that's why you paint. have like six kids, right? So that like, you can teach like one of them to play the piano while the rest oh, work yeah, your farm, yeah. I guess. Or just a whole band. You could go the <laughs> go the Joe Jackson route and just raise a musical combo. <laughs> uh, but it, just, it happens a couple times throughout the book, and it and it it happens in other period dramas uh, that are in this time period where it's you know you are it's a salon. It's like Everyone gather around and listen to this person we brought in to play the piano, you know? Um, yeah. And one of the things that is part of Edna's awakening is how she listens to this woman, Mademoiselle Rice, playing, get it, Chopin. Uh, mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's a little on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever. Um, and she's listening to her play it. And the way that um, I think I thought this was fascinating. The way that uh, Edna describes listening to music usually is that she gets these images in her head that correspond with the music. So she hears like a woman clad in a gown taking mincing dancing steps, or another one, you know, a man standing beside a desolate rock on a seashore or something. But then when Mademoiselle Rice plays. She says that she waits in vain. Uh, she saw no pictures of solitude, of hope, of longing, or of despair. But the very passions themselves were aroused within her soul, swaying it, lashing it, as the waves daily beat upon her splendid body. There's that sea metaphor for you. Um, and it's this idea that the music was so powerful that it did, it didn't even arise, it didn't even like arouse symbols in her mind. It just made her feel the feelings. Um, okay. And I, I don't know if I've had that. Ex- I guess there may be a handful of times I've felt that with music, but I don't, I don't think popular music today does that. <laughs> um, no, maybe not so much. And I just think that that is it's an interesting analog. Excuse me, my book fell down. Um, an interesting <laughs> analog to some of the other uh, kind of periods of growth that Edna goes through. She she has a mm-hmm. lot of discussions with Mademoiselle Rice about. Uh, what an artist is. Um, what of? It's not Edna's hobby per se. It's technically her work. She says is that she's a painter, um, and she ends up selling some paintings throughout the book. But Mademoiselle Rice kind of criticizes her for not living the daring life of an artist. And you know, Mademoiselle Rice is unmarried, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, mm-hmm. so there's this sense that you cannot create art if you are. You know, just a wife who, you know, takes care of her family. Yeah, right. You can either pick like the writerly, the artist's life or the or the stodgy down home family life. I wonder almost if that's some self insertion on uh, on Chopin's part. Yeah, maybe. Or not if <laughs> if not at least self insertion, but drawing from life experience, shall we say? I guess, but like she's she's in this position where she's stuck with these kids that she's got to raise that i don't even think are all hers or hers at all that i know she had a number of kids by the time she was 28 i don't yeah i just i don't remember because i know her mother died and at that point like she assumed responsibility for i think six children yes 
but it's okay. Um, it's possible that it might not have all been hers. That's fair. I don't know. I don't remember if that was because her mother died or because her husband died. But anyway, she's got to balance the demands of family life with the way she actually earns her money, which at this point is writing. Yes, she and she um, did. So I, f- I find I just find that that statement about who can be an artist interesting in light of what Chopin is actually. Doing. Yeah, and it's kind of fascinating that they don't. There's no. Um, there's no male artist figure either. And I don't mean that to say that there should have been. Um, I don't mean to say that it like a, a gender was shortchanged or anything. Like the male gender was shortchanged in this book. I don't <laughs> think that's the point. But I think it's interesting that Chopin is deliberately painting a world where that impulse gets honored by women. And the mm-hmm. men have these kind of, like I said, nebulous business contacts where it's like uh it just kind of says like yeah robert went to mexico for a business venture and the prospects weren't good so he came back and then yeah like if if i didn't sort of have an idea that this sort of thing happened yes in that time period i would feel like it was maybe too convenient like anytime a male character needs to be out of the story for plot reasons they can just go on a business trip well yeah and like leonce <laughs> goes to new york to trade stocks or something i guess like it's 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 purposefully vague while at the same at the same time probably being just as vague as it would have been <laughs> Yeah, like there's this whole there's this whole body of art that would not work if the internet existed. Oh no. Have you ever watched Big again since the internet existed? Just to go no, on a tangent? Well, I mean not I've not recently. So the whole part in Big, this is totally off topic, but the whole part in Big where Tom Hanks, like boy Tom Hanks has well, grown up boy Tom Hanks, he has to wait for the Department of Information or whatever it's called, to get back to him on where the pinball machine is. Okay. Or not the pinball, the Zotar machine or whatever, the magic machine that made him a man. Right. He has to wait for some bureau in New York to, like, look it up in a book somewhere. Yeah, if he just Googled it, yeah. he would have been fine. He could have Googled <laughs> the Zoltan or whatever it's called, like, phone number and figured it out. But instead he had to wait, and that, like, creates this whole context for why he's stuck as a dude. Uh, I saw that. It's so it's kind of weird. Like we were watching, we're watching through the Sopranos now, and we're in like the fourth season or something. Okay. And the Sopranos is like a pretty modern show. This is like the early two thousands. Um, you know, a, a lot of it is recognizably modern, and it's it's, you know, just in terms of TV history, it's it's got a lot of successors in shows like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and and um, these others. You know, the cable dramas that are happening. Yeah. But if somebody needs to be looking at some pictures, they're like looking at real, actual, developed, like like they went <laughs> three to, by five pictures. Yeah, they went to a like CBS. they went to the one yeah. hour photo mm-hmm. and they got these pictures developed, and that's how you look at pictures. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's just, yeah, like it's it's funny how technology changes art, and like I don't know, is even. With, with how fast things are progressing now is even kind of distracting if you watch a movie from like 10 years ago and they're using some big stupid old well phone. even in even in breaking bad right they they use like they don't use flip smartphones phones. everybody's got flip phones yeah yeah and they they text each other but it's still like a nokia phone it's like a phone you would play snake on like yeah right it's really weird um anyway so that's the awakening i guess <laughs> uh we stayed on topic for a good long period of time yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be overdue if we didn't go off on some tangent there at the at the beginning or end. So I'm yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. I, f- I feel I feel awakened. I feel good. Laura kept asking me as I was reading it if I felt like an empowered woman um, reading the book, and I I constantly felt like I was a privileged man. <laughs> like, yeah, that that is yeah, the. F- it sounds like one of those books that really makes you feel just how easy like societally speaking oh yeah we, we have it oh. and I, I don't think kind of, kind of what i was saying um about 30 minutes ago i think i was about right is that it is totally relevant but i think it's relevant if you look at it within its own context in the same way that i think um one of the reasons mad men's got a lot of play has been its its issues of gender in context right 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a way more interesting show with like Peggy as the protagonist than it is with f- frustrating goes around in circles, you know, defeating himself the same way every season. Don. Like, yeah. I don't. I don't think I'm spoiling anything for you. No, to, I don't. To, I don't think so either. I, I know that. that that is a huge part of the show. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the the thing about Mad Men is that it's like partly about the decade, and then especially about women rising up in that in that decade. It's it's tried in later seasons to do the same thing with race, but it has not. I don't think been quite as successful, just because there were not really any strong black characters built into the show from the beginning yeah yeah right. but anyway that that is neither here nor there if you have a tangent that you would like us to go <laughs> off on uh you can send us an email at uh, overdue pod at gmail.com you can also tweet at us at twitter.com slash overdue pod and you can like us on facebook at facebook.com slash overdue pod um we try to check all of those things pretty frequently and if you send us a message we will you know, try and respond to it on air if we if we want or whatever. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and if that's not enough, you can head on over to OverduePodcast.com uh, where you'll find uh, not only this episode but older episodes of the show uh, as well as Amazon links to all of the books that we've been reading uh, so you can follow along or read ahead if, if we're good at our jobs. Um, and you can also find links to our iTunes page where you can subscribe uh, or rate and review us, which we would greatly appreciate. And there's also a link to our RSS feed if you want to put us into some other sort of subscription service. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. Tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends. Awaken them. Tell them Craig sent you. Yeah. Or or me. Tell them we both Tell them I sent you. Um... I'm glad I read this book. Um, I'm, I'm actually, I really enjoyed this book. I don't think I said that yet. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I think it goes without saying. I, I think if, if you didn't like a book, it probably would have come up up front. Like, I think with both the books that I've read that I didn't like. We said so. Yeah, like The Da Vinci Code and um, You Shall Know Our Velocity. Oh, yeah, you hated that, that book. Um, yeah. But I don't want to necessarily take that for granted. And I also think that there's some 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 stylistic stuff that the book did that I didn't really talk about uh, that is kind of exploring not needing a a purely linear plot um, or at least a purely detailed plot and some interesting internal monologue without uh, it being in the first person. It's, it's all in the third person. I think it does a pretty good job of still putting you inside a character's head for being a book that was written in the 19th century. So, Yeah. So, uh, so read it. Yeah, read um, it. Next week, uh, <laughs> next week, I'm going to be reading The Old Man and the Sea Ooh. by Ernest Hemingway. Um, I have not read any Hemingway that I remember. Cool. That does not mean I've never read it, but <laughs> I just do not. If I read it, I was probably too young to appreciate it. So, so get out your, your fishing gear and your, and your boats and whatever, whatever else you need to go out to sea. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, everybody, try to be happy. Bye.